Hi, I'm Lisa Levin. And I'm Julie Sapper. We're the co-founders of Run Farther and Faster and co-hosts of the podcast under the same name. While we started this podcast as a Boston Marathon-focused podcast based on the experiences from our combined 31 finishes, we cover all things running-related. We've coached runners of all levels and goal distances all over the world for over 13 years. Thanks so much for joining us. We are so excited you're here. Hey, Lisa. Hey, Julie. How are you? It's it's almost April. <laughs> I know. It's like getting real. I always feel this kind of excitement. We've got um, Cherry Blossom 10 Miler, which is a big race here in our area, which we're going to talk to um, our guest today, Elisa Harvey, who's going to be there this weekend as well, a little bit about that race. But um, every time that comes, that to me is like the, it, it is called the right of, I think we call it the, the runner's right of passage into spring or whatever. The spring right of passage is this race. And every year, this is sort of a, a our rhythm of the year is cherry blossom comes and then Boston is a couple weeks later. So, and, and here we go. So uh, we're getting really excited. Uh, the official announcement came out this week about our panel that we have at the expo Sunday, the 16th at 1 PM. So that is officially out there and we are part of the expo schedule, the which is yeah, the, the Boston, Boston marathon. marathon. Yes. Expo, oh, sorry. Not <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. I'm sorry. I didn't know if I, yeah, yeah, yeah. sorry. I talked about being excited for Boston. Sorry transitioned into Boston, but yes, we will be at the Boston Marathon Expo on uh, Sunday, the day before the marathon, uh, and uh, just getting really excited. Yeah, so we're, of course, co-hosting our panel, as we talked about last week, with Cherie Louise Turner, who is the host of the Women's Running Stories podcast, and our guests, Jacqueline, Han Jacqueline Hansen, Marilyn Bevins, and Patty Dillon, all of whom are legendary women podium pioneers at the Boston Marathon and beyond. And we couldn't be more excited to share their stories and allow them the opportunity to share about their lives and what running has done for them and, and, and what that looked like when they competed in Boston. And we just can't wait. And speaking of Boston, we learned uh, about a couple months ago from Tony Reed, one of our prior guests, who of course was the creator of the documentary Breaking Three and um, the president of the National Black Marathoners Association that Elisa Harvey, a local phenomenal runner in our area was going to be running Boston for the first time. And we knew we had to have Elisa on the podcast, but a little background about Elisa, Lisa, you and I, Lisa, are prolific road racers in the DC area. And we both, as we've shared our personal stories, we've been running um, we started running in law school ourselves and kind of got onto the local racing circuit when um, our kids were really little and competed and a little bit before they were born. But a lot of our local road racing was right after we had our kids. And we'd see this woman at every race, Elisa Harvey, crushing the Army 10 miler, winning the Army 10 miler. I believe she won it six times. Um, competing. Yeah, if you ever showed up and Elisa Harvey was there, you knew you weren't going to run the road. Like, you know, Absolutely. Even the little races, if, you'd be like, oh no, Elisa Harvey's here. She's so good. So she's a legend. I mean, in my mind, that's um, like you said, from the days that I first started doing road racing here, which was probably about 20 years ago. It was always like that. Her name was always the top of the, of the, of the, you know, the, of the results list. And it's just, um, you know, I look back, I have I have a scrapbook of some of my earliest races. I, I was into scrapbooking back then. I have a scrapbook and I go back sometimes and I look, I printed out the results and put them in the scrapbook and she's in so many of them. And it's just, like you said, a very prolific, uh, prolific racer and somebody we would see a lot in the area. Yeah. And, and someone that inspired both of us because she was also a mom and she was yep. competing at such a high level. And she has quite a story. We we're familiar with Elisa because of the local running circuit. We knew she was a nationally ranked runner, but she's really, she's just done some tremendous things in her life. And Elisa is a master's runner. She's 57 now, and she's still competing at a very high level. And she shares her story with us. And it, it's quite a story. And she was featured in Tony Reed's documentary, Breaking Three. And that is because she broke three hours in 1999 at the Richmond Marathon, her first- And her first marathon. First marathon and ever. Richmond is not an easy course. So just, you know, she kind of went out on a whim. She talks about this during her interview, but she didn't even really train. I mean, she trained in terms of like, you know, she did track workouts and, but she didn't do a typical uh, marathon training cycle for that and kind of just showed up on race day 
and uh, wrote her splits down on her wrist and and broke three hours, which is you know just a testament to her her natural ability and her talent. Yeah, she broke three hours and she qualified for the Olympic marathon trials in a time of two forty nine. So yeah, she did that thing, and then she decided that she wanted to go to Boston this year after. Um, being invited as a guest as part of the National Black Distance Running Hall of Fame and part of the Breaking Three movie. She um, went up to Boston last year and had the opportunity to watch the start and was inspired like so many people are. And unlike so many people though, Elise on her first try, basically as a master's runner, went back down to Richmond, ran in November and qualified for Boston and received an entry through the BAA after qualifying and we'll be towing the start line this year. And we are really excited to meet her in person, hopefully at Boston. But in the meantime, we wanted to share her incredible story today. And this is this episode really, we're, we're so blown away by Elisa. We've had so many incredible guests on this podcast and she is no exception. Um, a little background about Elisa. She was the 24th woman, American woman to break 430 in the mile. She holds multiple world records in various master's age divisions for the 800 and the mile. She's been inducted into the National Black Distance Running Hall of Fame, and she is the only runner in the United States to run in the U.S. Olympic trials in both the 800 and the marathon. She's qualified for the Olympic marathon, the Olympic trials rather, five times between 1992 and 2008, from of course the 800 meters to the marathon. She was ranked in the top 10 in the 1500 event eight years in a row from 1986 to 93 with a first with a 1500 personal best of 408.32. She also won the gold in the 1500 meters in the 1991 Pan American Games. She's won the Fifth Avenue Mile in New York. And of course, as we mentioned before, won the Army Ted Miler on multiple occasions and has won countless road races, countless. So that's just a little bit about Elisa, but What's really compelling about her story isn't her race times. It's it's her. And it's all of the things that she overcame to, to continue running strong. And her portfolio of distances is truly amazing. She is not a short dis, dis, distance runner. She's not a long distance runner. She's just all of it. And uh, we're, we're just really excited to bring her. And on. she's a coach now too. And she coaches, which we love because that's bringing her experience and her passion um, to the next generation of runners. So that's, uh, you know, and, and she talks about that a little bit during the podcast or in our interview with her, how, you know, that's, and, and that we find that too, that the coaching brings us joy, um, you know, regardless of what's going on with our running, that the coaching is how we kind of pay it forward and how we continue to derive joy from this, this sport. So I love that she does that now too. Absolutely. So Lisa, before we go, um, we had talked last week about Kara Goucher's book, and we had said that we were going to do a little drawing for folks who left a review um, on our podcast this week, and we were blown away by the reviews that we received. We are so grateful. Not only the reviews, but the stories that came yes. with them. So everyone, you know, people, we asked people to send us an email so we had their contact information so we could enter them. And we got so many really touching emails that were just from amazing people. So I thought that was really cool. Absolutely. So we did a, a little random drawing and um, we selected the winner and the winner is Andrea Gilder. And Andrea wrote at a review and then sent us an email. And I, I think it would be okay with Andrea. <laughs> Hopefully I just wanted to read it because it's a really cool story. So she wrote, Hello, ladies. I'm dropping you an email to let you know I left you a first time review on Apple yesterday titled My Favorite Podcast. As I was listening to episode 166 yesterday and you were talking about Kara Goucher's book, it reminded me of a conversation I had with one of my patients this week. I am an infusion nurse and I was explaining to my patient I would not be there for her infusion next month because I would be running the Boston Marathon. Her jaw dropped and her eyes got this big and she said, you are going to the Olympics. You two are part of my running journey. Congratulations on your success as runners, coaches, and podcast hosts. Thank you, Andrea Gildor from Knoxville, Tennessee. So we're sending Andrea a copy of Kara's book. And thank you to everyone who sent such amazing reviews. We love hearing your stories and we appreciate your emails and feedback. It truly makes our day. Absolutely. So without further ado, let's turn it over to our interview with Elisa. Lisa, I hope you have a great week and a great cherry blossom race. Thanks, Julie. Have a great week. Bye. Bye.
Alisa Harvey, welcome to the Run Farther and Faster podcast. As we mentioned to you offline a moment ago, we are so thrilled to have you here. We've been admiring you from afar for years. We've raced in many of the same local DC area races as you. You were way ahead of us. And we know you have such a compelling story and we cannot wait to share your story with our listeners. So why don't we start um, by having you introduce yourself to our runners and a little bit to our listeners and a little bit about your running background. Okay, so again, Alisa Harvey, I, let's say, I was born and raised in Virginia and in Northern Virginia. Um, I started running because I figured out I was pretty good at it during our uh, grade school presidential physical fitness testing, which they don't have anymore. But back then it was like, I couldn't wait for that because that was my thing. Um, I was always the strongest, always the fastest. I beat some of the, most of the boys in the 600 meter or 600 yard run. So when I got to middle school and high school, the, the teachers would say, go out for track. So when I got to high school, I, I joined the track team. But the funny thing was, is that I gained all this weight from puberty. And when I got my freshman year to the team, I was so slow that I, um, even the warm up, we had to do like a half mile warm up or through the neighborhood, maybe three quarters of a mile. I couldn't even hardly run that. So I had to drag myself back to the track. I wasn't one of the fastest runners. I was kind of disillusioned, but it was okay because my goal was to be a sprinter. I had watched the movie um, Wilma, Wilma Rudolph was an Olympic sprinter back in 1950s, 60s and gold medalist. So she grew up with polio. She was very much poverty stricken, lots of kids. And the movie on TV was just like, oh, I have to be that. And I was fast. I knew from the 50 yard dash that I could be quick. So of course I was going to be a sprinter. And sure enough, I tried out for track sprint events and I did the one, the 200. And then I was good, but I never won any of those races. So then I decided to run, um, or the team said, hey, try the four by four, did the four by four and loved it. And we won some races. But then one day the coach said, Alisa, try the 800. I literally cried because they took me off the four by four because I couldn't do both events. And um, when I did the 800, I won it. And of course, I say the rest is history because then I stayed in the 800 because I liked it. I was winning and I went to the mile and the two mile. Um, by my sophomore year, I decided to join the girls cross country team. And in those days, this would be 1982, 81, um, we didn't, we had like four girls. So we didn't have a full team. So it was still new kind of thing for girls to run that far. Um, I ran and had a great, I kept getting better and better. And by the end of the year, I made, or that season, I made it to the state meet. And I remember my, this is kind of a good old country boy track or cross country coach. who was the coach of the girls and the boys. I ended up getting the MVP for the boys and the girls team because I did so well and other, kid, other kids did. So from there, I just became a runner and it was mostly distance or middle distance. So that's kind of my beginning into running. I love that story about getting MVP because we often um, talk about it and we hear, and I'm listening to um, Lauren Fleshman's book right now, Good for a Girl. So hearing mm -hmm. you talk about hitting puberty and uh -huh. what happens, you know, when we hit puberty is, you know, is very relevant right now to a lot of the discussions that we're having. But what what was it like? What kind of support did you feel like from the team and from, you know, you said there are only four girls. Did, were, did you run with the guys? Did you feel support? Did you feel supported by your coach? Yes. So the girls were great because they're like, we almost have a team and we love it. And there's a real girl, the girl on the team that would just enjoy being um, my training partner when she could, but she realized you're much faster go. So I trained with the boys. The boys were great because it was kind of cool. I had this girl, it's kind of fast, you know, it's with them every day. Um, and then the coaches, I had really, I was very fortunate to get some really good teacher coaches. Sometimes kids don't get so lucky, but I was lucky to get some some coaches that saw something in me and spent a lot of time uh, working on the workouts and building little fun stuff to do. And so I stayed interested in it. Um, and yes, the puberty issue was um, really, for me, it was like 20 pounds in one summer. Luckily for me, I developed early, so I didn't have to go through being good and then dropping. I was slow and then got better because I was so big. Um, and it was funny because that was part of like the little jokes too, because I was around before running bras, running bras didn't really come <laughs> in until 88 or nine, almost in the late eighties. And so I wore just regular old, big old, strong playtex sport uh, bras. 
And I would literally get shaved and bleed because I was much larger than I was now. So through the years of running, I've gotten smaller and smaller on my cup size. But then I was not. So then some of the pictures, I mean, I have one here, one there. I had like this, um, my, my breasts would be uneven because of all the bounce and everything. But anywho, um, when sports bras came in, I thought I had died and gone to heaven because I'd won one in a road race. And I ended up um, spending my $25 uh, prize to buy a running bra. So yes, I was lucky to get the situation I got with the great um, coaches, and then it was stayed. It stayed fun, and I wanted to keep doing it. Wow, we could have a whole discussion on this. As Lisa mentioned, Lauren Fleshman's book, "Good for a Girl," discusses this at length. But it really underlines Lauren's point in her book, which is great coaching allows yeah. girls and women to get through this period unscathed. Poor yes. coaching causes many girls to end up quitting the sport or feeling like they're less than. So what a compelling story as a result of that. And by the way, there should be an asterisk next to your time for those that you ran wearing the Playtex bra versus <laughs> the sports bra. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> Something we do take take for granted now. We just assume, you know, it's yes. bras, of course, like you don't even think about um, until you yeah. talk to runners um, from before, like you said, before the 80s. So you said you loved it and you wanted to continue. So talk to us a little bit about continuing into college and what that was like. Okay, so I was not going to go to college without a college scholarship. Parents did not have the money. We were low income, considered blue collar, low income. So I was the first one in my family to go to college, or I think the only, but uh, the, the scholarship I got from Tennessee, which of course catapulted me into the NCAA. Um, and I had a nice time there. It's right around, was it 83, 84? I went into college. I graduated in 83 from high school, 1983. So women's track at Tennessee was big. I ended up being the NCAA champion in 1987, which further um, boosted me to continue into the sport because then I was at Olympic trials qualifying and I was getting, I got a contract from um, Nike just as I graduated. So that kept me going at post-college, but college of course allowed me to get my degree and, and of all things, speech communications, which years later helped me when I went into the Avon running global circuit. They don't know if they have that anymore, but with Catherine Switzer, I was running around the country talking to kids and girls and running groups about the, the benefits of running, cardiovascular health, education, et cetera. So that kind, that connection between my education and what I was and what I was doing worked for me for into the 90s. Yeah. When you were at Tennessee and competing, um, did you have any hiccups and what was it like for you to be a college athlete? And within that, what advice do you have for young people who are looking um, toward that path? A uh, major hiccup after my freshman year, which was pretty successful, although I gained a lot of weight, the old freshman 15, I gained every bit of 15 pounds. And so the coach at the time was not, not happy with me because I started to, I had, I was starting the season in the cross country team where we were NCAA potential winners, but I had gotten so heavy during the cross country season that my time, I was top five, went way back down to the fifth position and much slower. So we did not win. I had a tough time and she was like, you're, you're probably heavy, Lisa, that kind of thing. So I went through that bad feeling of being overweight and not you know, valuing myself and not running as fast as I did when I came in. So I literally, by the end of, even though I did well in track, kind of lost some of the weight, I quit school. I left Tennessee um, officially, and we had happened to be that coach left and a new coach came in. So the new coach had to come in and fly to my house in Virginia and ask me to come back to Tennessee. And thank God he did. I was, what a mistake that would have been, but I did come back, um, got a full scholarship again and finished out my career. So it has a rocky start, but from then things went much better. I had a different coach. I went through a big major obstacle. I knew what kind of um, curriculum I wanted. I enjoyed my teammates and then things went on wonderfully. But yeah, the stress of, because when I was a, I was a cross country, indoor and outdoor athlete. So I had three seasons of NCAAs and we were not just sitting around doing local meets. Tennessee flew all across the country all year long. So it was a struggle academically. I didn't overextend myself. I'm no brain surgeon, but I did get my degree in speech communications and um, was happily Walked across the stage with my diploma in 1988. Took me six, took me one extra 
quarter to finish up my degree after I graduated, after my eligibility was over. And again, your story in college, again, underlines the importance of having a good coach who is knowledgeable and understands how to coach women. So to that end, what advice do you have for young people who are per- potentially pursuing that path toward college running? Um, be logical or do your research when it comes to picking your major. Um, the mistake I made early on in my freshman year was I did too many hours. I had, I took like darn near 18 hours or something crazy. Um, and as an NCAA athlete training or competing in training 12 or 13 was a better fit for how many, how much hours you could spend studying. And then don't overextend yourself in a major that's too difficult. I originally went into communications, um, which almost worked, but I got it a D in two classes, two Ds, and I was out of college. So I had to stick with um, liberal arts. Um, So yeah, pick your major strategically and smart and don't overextend. And everybody's not um, a mathematician. Everyone's not a scientist. Everyone's not a literary, but pick what you can do and then enjoy. What about the team um, made, you know, did you feel made you successful? Like what, when, when, you know, students now are looking at colleges. What do they? What do they look at in a team, in a coach, in a team? Like, what, what, mm-hmm. what helped you? Um, you know, you said it was successful after your little hiccup, and you came back. It was successful. You had a good team, good coach. What made that good? I think for for me, for for the Tennessee choice, it was the aura of athletics. I mean, I went to school first and foremost, truly, was for my athletic goals and then my education. Um, and it was such a good institution as far as um, facilities, training, trainers, um, and the, the, the income to, to, um, to travel and all that. That meant that I could, um, I could expand and I could compete and train and have the best. So having the best facilities, best coaches, it makes a big difference if you're at that level. I was at a high level and I wanted to stay at that high level in my participation again so if you're a d2 or d3 athlete you have a different kind of mindset for me i was thinking long term and for you know potentially olympic team level right and that so then moving on you um you know you spoke about it briefly a little bit ago um post-collegiate getting sponsored by nike talk to us about that trajectory how that happened after college and then sort of you know how did that how did you train how did then how did things develop from there Okay, that part was not as fun because then you're, you know, once you graduate, then it's work Um, and you have an obligation. I had a contract with Nike Athletics West. You get boost or you get a bonus if you set certain times or qualify for certain events or national championships. uh, You have to stay healthy. You have to train. You've got to make it work with what kind of money they gave you. I didn't get a whole lot of money coming out back in 1988. In fact, I got you can you know, adjust for inflation. 1988, I got twelve thousand dollars for the whole year, which meant I had to Ridiculous. work. Yeah, exactly. Um, I did get free gear, okay, um, but I had to have a job. So for me, what happened? What best thing for me was I got involved with the Olympic Job Opportunities Program in '92 or '90. I think it was '90. Yeah, training for '92. Well, '88, I did okay, but I didn't quite make it because I. Cause my head, um, my menstrual cycle, the day of the finals, I got my, <laughs> so that kind of, I made it to the finals, but that took it out. I was feverish. I was bloated and it was like, darn it. Okay. So 92. Wait, let's go back of- for, wait, we, we got to yeah. talk about that for a moment. Yeah. How, I mean, that is something that happens to so many of us. What was that like for you on your crowning day on the day for that to happen to you? How did you deal with that mentally? Well, first of all, I was really kicking myself because my coach at the time was an exercise physiologist. So he had other athlete Olympians that he was coaching and they had maneuvered their menstrual cycles to not hit the trials. But for some reason, I didn't address that or he didn't address it with me or we should have talked about that, but boom. And maybe it was, if I can recall, well, sometimes with the menstrual cycle, when you train, it adjusts itself when you start resting. So it came sooner than it should have. I started to taper and then boom. Um, so I think either, even with the coach working, I should have, I probably would have had to be on hormones to really make it adjust. But then that's another story because the birth control pills blew me up and I never could make that work. So it wouldn't have worked anyway. So yes, that was devastating, but I was so young. Gosh, in 88 was in my early twenties. 
it was okay. There were going to be more. And that's what the coach said. It's okay, Lisa. We're going to try again. So, so I did. <laughs> but yeah. So in 92, or preparing for 92, I was then married. Um, my first big mistake. But anyway, my first um, husband, I married in 1990. <laughs> and we moved out to California. Um, I had a good tra- uh, coach. Weather is beautiful in California. It's a great place to train. I got in touch, or I got connected with J.C. Penney's Olympic Job Opportunities Program. I worked full time, or I worked half day for full time wage. So there was my money coming in from Nike. I had my work at J.C. Penney's. I worked in security, so I didn't have to do a whole lot of work on my feet. It was perfect. I trained well. Pan American Games, Pan American Games gold medal. Um, everything went well. It, it was just that in 92, I was at New Orleans and it was hotter than hot. Um, and I had had a heat stroke years ago in my teen years. So I didn't get myself properly pre-hydrated. I should have probably used IV, should have done more ice baths. But by the end of two events, I did the 800 meters and the 1500 meters. I qualified for both and I was shoe in for both. Okay. But um, by the first round of the 800s, I came in six. I didn't make the team, all that. I was hot and exhausted. Um, at that point is when I should have gotten some IV and then started the rounds for the, for the 1500. So I came to the finals of the 1500 and same thing. I just ran out of gas and I didn't make the team in either event there. So that was my learning experience about my heat skillness. Um, and I still kept it going for a few more years. 96 was the next time. That was my, probably my best chance. It was Atlanta. So it was still hot, but I did get IV this time, but I had a, um, a kind of a, what do you call a me too moment? Whereas I ran into a, um, I went to the village of my own. I was coaching myself at this point. So I went and arrived in Atlanta at the trials village, you call it. And I got myself a massage by this doctor who was, I thought, just a massage therapist. And as it turns out, he was just, um, he wasn't a doctor, but he had massaged me. And then that, then um, nothing about that. Things went great. I was doing my rounds, 800 meters the night before the finals. He called at 1 a.m. in the morning, woke me up out of my sleep, um, I had my own room because the U.S. or GSA track and field gave my own room because I was whatever. Um, answer the phone and this man talked about what he could do to my rear end at 1 a.m. the night before the finals of the Olympic trials. So that I finally got back to sleep. That's a big old check off. You know, when you're trying to be the best in the country and you just lose sleep, there's one negative. Secondly, I was I got myself together the next day, went on down to the stadium for the finals. And I'm looking around every corner like, where is this? crazy guy and that's another stressor that you don't need and when I got on the track I went out the gun went off I went out this is only what eight of us top three make the team I went out too fast and so I led the darn race <laughs> from the first lap uh into the next 600 meters I didn't get past until 600 meters by the winner and then coming around the curve two to three more people passed me and I finished a close what six again? So I didn't make the team again. Um, I do believe the stress from the ordeal took me off that edge just by a couple seconds. You know, it wasn't I wasn't like in the trees. I just the winner was under two minutes. I was at around two minutes, and that was another. So it was 1996. Um, so then there's 2000. Wait, wait, was, we got it. We got to go back for a second. Okay. So just I'm listening to this and and truly you could write a story about the obstacles (laughs) professional women and collegiate women athletes face and your story about um what happened with the massage and you just mentioned you don't he wasn't even a doctor he was just he was a massage therapist he was a doctor so he should not have been there given he was a doctor yeah okay so um First of all, your story, I don't know if you've had a chance yet to read Kara Goucher's book, but what yeah. happened, Yeah, she, she had this happen to her on multiple occasions by her coach, Alberto Salazar, and she's very mm-hmm. public about that. So when we both read the book, Lisa and me, we were talking about it offline. We are certain there are dozens of oh, women yeah. who, who dozens, hundreds, thousands, and your story, I'm sure is, is not one, but my question is that, you know, there was no safe sport then there was no reporting body for you to share this with. Did you share this with anyone? And have you thought about now that there is 
that body? Have you ever seen this person again? Have you ever thought about reporting it? Uh, no, I never shared it. And yes, um, I have uh, in more recent times, like five years ago, I had an opportunity. I asked some questions to someone who was in the higher up, making sure that person wasn't there anymore. And then I have not done it to fall right now because it happened so darn long ago. I was hoping he just kind of went away and it seems like he did go away. But yes, I wish that was something that was around um, because to be honest with you, that was a devastating situation for me because here I had just one, two, three trials. It was done. I remember that evening I went back onto the bus, back to my hotel by myself, even though at that point I was married and I had a little two-year-old. Um, but I went back, back to the hotel by myself and I had literally, because we were in a high rise at the Hyatt in, in Atlanta, Hyatt or Hilton, I was getting confused. I walked over to the, to the sliding glass door, opened it up, and I stepped out in the balcony and I thought really about the thought of just, you know, ending it, jumping. Um, and I kept going closer to the edge of it, thinking, it's okay, I have my daughter, but this is, this is hard to, this is, it's a horrible moment in my life. I'm devastated. I don't want to keep going. I don't want to face people. And then the phone rang. And so I thought, okay phone, phone. So the phone, I literally went to go get the phone and happened to be a reporter from the Boston area. That's where we lived at the time asking how things went. And then my husband came to the door with the baby. So it was just one of those things that probably, cause I'd heard years later, there was an athlete who did that after a trials and didn't make it and, and jumped off and kill, killed themselves. So I, that was, and it, it really is a serious thing. I'm glad that Goucher did put that in a book. No, I haven't written a book. I thought about writing a book too. Um, because yeah, this is one of many um, yucky stories that you deal with as the female athlete, maybe even the male athlete too. But yeah, that was a, a serious tailspin. Um, and it yeah. just underscores too that, you know, in his mind, it was probably, he probably didn't even think about it after that. You know, it was some stupid thing he called in the middle of the night. He didn't think about it. But for you, it took your edge away from, you know, <laughs> qualifying. It made you think about throwing yourself off of a hotel balcony. Right. It, it seriously impacted you, where for him, it was probably he woke up in the morning and didn't think about it, which is yeah. just, um, it's just, it's really, that's, yeah. um, that's it, it just underscores and like Julie said it's you know and you just mentioned it, it's probably happened to most female right. athletes and females you know it's just it's something that um and it, it's it, it it is kind of shaped even the trajectory of your career possibly mm -hmm. so that's um crazy so you mentioned your daughter so back up a little bit talk to us about having your daughter and how your running changed around having um having your daughter like you know did you train through your pregnancy did your running change after how did it how did that change your running um, so I did, I, this was when I had her was 1990. She, she was born 1994 rather. And in those days it was still kind of one of those things where if you had a baby, you really should stop running. So I lost my manager when I had my baby because I was, you know, a mother. Um, but I still said, you know what, I think I feel pretty good. And I still got myself into shape and I ran a 430 something in the Miami mile. So I thought I was still at it. Okay. And I said, forget that. I'm going to keep going. Um, and I did not have a contract at that time. And I, so I had no extra income. It was just me, mom, and then my husband. So, um, you know, being a, being a mother meant that there was a time I had to do, a, I went to a big race in Kentucky from California and I brought her with me because no one was there to take care of her. I thought my husband was working and she came along and it was massive prize money. Someone watched her for me at this little Kentucky place where we're near close to the race site. And they were like, we're going to take care of her. She's like one and a half. And I ran the race, got some good money, and then picked her up and off we went home. So <laughs> I made that work. Um, we had to, my husband and I moved back to the Boston area because we were in California. And my mother-in-law watched her while I trained. And so I had a living babysitter. Thank goodness for that. And then, um, but things didn't work as well when I started, when I moved we moved out of the parents' home into our own place in New York. Then I had to find babysitters, and that became harder because there was one that she didn't like, and I can tell it was not a good situation because she cried terribly when, we, when I take her there. So then you get that agony of taking your child somewhere so you can do something they hate being there. Um, I even had times where I'd take her to the track with me in New York in March or April where it was cold and I turned around and she's in a puddle of water and so the workout's finished and so we went home so there's all kinds of things I did to make it work um and it, it I made it it still managed to keep an elite career with um a child so 
That's incredible. And we hear you. We know as moms, like everything we've done, but how you juggle and um, and and the guilt that comes with doing some, you know, yes, putting your yes. kids somewhere so you can go do run, like you feel that right. guilt. So, so that's amazing. So you, your daughter was born in 1994. You Four. said and you transitioned to the marathon in 1999. Is that when, when did you mm-hmm. transition to the marathon? Well, I wouldn't say transition. Okay. I would say that I was working at a running store and I was still running um, track very, you know, I shoot back in 1998. Um, I was still running track. I remember doing the cherry blossom and running week next and 800 meters. So I would just do both. Okay. Um, so what happened was I was at the running store working for extra money for my low income and people kept coming in training for marathons. And I'm like, I want to try a marathon. I've done 10 milers. Why can't I do a marathon? So I entered the Richmond marathon in 1999 against many of my friends advice. What are you doing, Elisa? You're not a marathoner. And truly, I didn't really train for the marathon. I would do, I go out to the local lake and do um, five mile loops. I did a max of four loops. So 19, almost 19, almost 20 miles once. And I did a bunch of like 12 milers and some 14 milers. And then I just did my own track training. So Richmond Marathon, 1999, I drove myself down there and um, I had written down my hands, no garment, there were no garments there. Or there were maybe, but I didn't have one. Um, I wrote down the splits on my hand and I said, I'm gonna go 6.30 and see what happens. And I was doing it. I was 6.30 in it, came down along the river and some guys tried to talk and they're trying to chit chat my, so I sped up to get away from them. And I was going too fast somewhere in the middle miles. That kind of hurt me. So I got to mile 22, still on some decent pace. And I started to hit the wall. So the guys are coming like, you're almost there, come on. So I made it through the darn finish line and 2.49 and some change. Oh, but I was a dead woman. So they had to take me to the medical tent. I laid there for a while. Maybe I got IV, I don't know. But yeah, that qualified me for the trials. <laughs> it's, it's so amazing you did that. And, and what people outside of this area likely don't know is you, you were absolutely training for that marathon while still road racing. I mean, you were and continue to be such a prolific road racer at every distance. In fact, I I'm derailing for, for a moment, but there's a point to this. I remember I, it was this rinky dink race many, many years ago. I want to say it was like in like the, like 2004, 2005, because I had a baby at the time and you were pushing a stroller in a race and you won, it was a PR running race. You won oh my the whole thing in the stroller. <laughs> you beat the men. Like it was yes. crazy. My That's point is, I, and we can get to that, but my point is you were training for this marathon where you broke three and qualified for the Olympic trials while you were still this prolific road racer. Mm-hmm. So question for you, first of all, how did you not get injured <laughs> for that? And and did you realize that you did something really magnificent when you finished Richmond? Did you realize that you had had made some history there? No, absolutely not. I did. I was just another run that crazy Lisa is out there doing with um, on her own. I did not have a coach. I was doing whatever I wanted to do and how I felt. Um, and I wanted to do a marathon dog line. Uh, that's so funny. That race. Yes, that was when I just had my second not too long ago. He was, he was a he was baby, baby. Um, and I thought, yeah, I'm going to sit back in the back. I started in the back. <laughs> I started, but what happened was this. I'm competitive. And some other guy with the baby stroller came beside me like, oh, okay, it's on. <laughs> and he's a big old tall guy. He had like a three-year-old in there. I said, said, okay. So I started running with him for a while. And next thing we were weaving in and out of people. And yeah, I passed everybody and they got him at the end. I was so crazy. I'm very competitive. <laughs> So that's why. And I don't, I think, get injured because I don't run a lot of miles. I never have. And in fact, before training for Richmond, I walked, my longest mile was 52 miles that one, that one week. And then went on back down. I never could tolerate a lot of mileage. Mine's just fast mileage is what it was. So I, I was always running a six minute pace. Okay. So that's a difference. I just ran sl- shorter, but harder. And, and I literally that year um, in 1998, I ran Cherry Blossom 5535, which is I'm like, where did that come from? And then a week later, I ran a 204 on the track. Um, and road racing was my income. I mean, you could make in those days, I don't know if it's still the same, 
I would go Saturday and Sunday, 500, 500. I remember once um, I live in Manassas, I traveled down to Winchester and ran this race and didn't even win it. Came got second or third, but I got like 300 bucks. Then I came home, packed my bag and went to Union Station and, and, and went to check the train to New York and ran in their like women's race to the secure series or something. And I won that. So I got $500 there and then a crystal bowl and all that kind of stuff. So that was my week. <laughs> okay. That is amazing. And so fun to just, oh, I'm going to try this and this and actually win. And I'm going to guess the race in Winchester that you ran was like the Apple Blossom Festival race or something. Like I don't that. think it was Apple Blossom. That's a hard course. It was something, something I've never seen again before, but it was like dogs were chasing us. It was something, I know, Ricky. <laughs> Um, but and that's how you train because you you racing that intensely. That's a great training um, tool. So your speed work, yeah, yeah. So what I think is really neat is we'll get to this in a bit. But you have qualified for Boston for this year. You decided to you know try to qualify. You hadn't done Boston. You wanted to qualify, and you went back to Richmond, right? Did you do yes. that? Uh -huh. I think that's really, that's really meaningful. So that's, uh, that's, yeah. that's pretty neat. So let's, let's use this opportunity then to talk a little bit about why you want to run Boston okay. and what you're looking forward to at Boston, <laughs> how your training is going for Boston. So why, why, what, what, what motivated you to qualify for Boston after all these years of running so many accomplishments? <laughs> why Boston now? Oh my gosh. I went up last year to, as part of the National Black Marathon Association to go with Marilyn Bevins who I am ashamed to say I never heard of until three, maybe four years ago, who just a hundred miles from me, there she was living and running. I never heard of her. Uh, the first African-American uh, sub three hour marathoner. So because I'm a part of that little group of women, now I think it's 28 African-American women have fought, run under three hours. Uh, we went up and the BAA treated her and then us with the nice little VIP to the starting line. And so there I was looking at this amazing just spread of, um, you know, I got to see, I think I saw a couple who's who's it's inside the building. I can't remember who their names were, but anyway, so she got to start the wheelchair race and I got a nice jacket from the 2022 Boston Marathon. And I realized there, I had a chance to walk into the hotel where the elites were, <laughs> um, that it is not just a race, it's an event. It's a um it's an entire thing. And so I, so I wanted to be a part, like a bucket list. I wanted to be a part of running that experience. I mean, heck, I used to live in Cambridge. I used to live in Boston, Newton, um, years ago. I should have done it then, but I wasn't in that. I was track and field. So now that I can do the distance, I wanted to be on that starting line. Like I saw right there. I was right there at the starting line and get the chance to go through all the streets and do the whole exciting thing. That's all. <laughs> so... You, you were there last year with Marilyn and all of the women that are part of the club you're in that we'll talk about in a moment. And you saw this for yourself and you decided to make a plan and you decided to go back to Richmond in 2022 and run a marathon. But things were, I'm sure, felt much different because it's yeah. been um, 25, <laughs> 20 over 20 years. 24 years. 24 years. Yeah. Oh, no, it would have been 23, 23 then because yeah. you qualified okay. 2022. Yeah. So tell us what your training was like for 2022 in Richmond and, and, and how that race went for you. So, um, I, not nearly what I did. In, and of course, 1999, I just, I'm not there anymore. My body's older. So what I was doing mostly is three and four mile runs, uh, making sure that I was acclimating well, doing some longer 10 mile, 12. I went up to maybe, I even did a 17 mile on a treadmill for, I think it was raining outside. I didn't want to do that, but I was really at, my biggest concern was the heat. I wanted to make sure I was acclimated. I always had problems with long races now because of my heat issues. Um, and I was, uh, not doing as much track again, because I'm just not there anymore. I'm just runner now. Um, I did have an issue where I overloaded myself with iron because I was going through menopause, which I finally got into menopause. Thank goodness. Um, but I was having a lot of frequent cycles and that was making me, um, depleted, anemic, but I made the mistake of taking too much during COVID. I didn't have my regular blood test. So I Got, got too much iron in my system. I could feel it in me. It was slowing me down. So the biggest way to remedy that is to run distance. And that's what I was doing. So I was just running 
and um, Richmond was my goal because I wanted to qualify for Boston. And the thing, the funny thing was, or not so funny, it was 75 degrees that day on November 12th at the Richmond Marathon. So I'm like, oh my gosh, I've got to do it now because it's, I want to qualify for Boston, but it's hot and it's going to probably kill me. So my husband was with me and I made the plan to go eight minutes. Just, just, I was, could have gone seven lows, but I was training for seven lows, but eight minutes would get me through it without killing myself. And every single water stop, I pull over, drink and splash and drink, get the fluid in me. I learned that uh, years ago in, in another race. So um, that's how I did it. I got to mile 20. I had to take my shoe off because I got too much water and anyway, but I managed to finish still struggling because it was hot and I came in like a zombie woman, but when I got to the fence, my husband realized I was not looking good. Called the medic, put me in a wheelchair and took me to the tent. I got IV. So it was a great experience after I got my IV, but yeah, I did it. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, we're going to hope for, we're going to help for cool weather in Boston. Not too cold, yes. but cool weather in Boston for you. And how are you training for Boston? What are you looking forward to in Boston? What is, you know, what is it? Yeah. Well, um, I'm a little more amped up because I know that Boston's a challenging course. Challenging, yeah, real challenging, I hear, in those hills. So I've been doing a lot of my neighborhoods. It's pretty hilly in my neighborhood. I've been doing some hill training, too. I've increased mileage. I'm up to six-mile, five-mile-plus runs more consistently. Um, even done a couple 17-mile runs, maybe not as many as I should have. But I did do the Shamrock Half Marathon last week two weekends ago yep. mm -hmm. Virginia Beach yeah uh 133 one well, my age group okay Ooh. so that <laughs> yes it was nice and you're cold. in great shape you're in great shape yeah and huh so I'll do Terry Blossom this weekend for another tune-up we'll see what happens with the weather and the wind I think it's gonna be cool but maybe breezy um but if I can go into the high six minutes then that means I can go into Boston in the seven mid-range maybe you play it by ear with the weather so I'm good yeah, well, our advice is to go to Boston and enjoy it because you, you experience it. You saw the beginning, this just at the start line, it extends the entire race. Like, soak really? it in, enjoy it. Like, uh, just it's, it's such an amazing. And like you said, it's it's not just a race; it's a it's a yeah. pilgrimage and it's an event. Right. So the whole weekend is such a. We always struggle with getting exhausted by Monday morning because we do so much over the weekend um, that by Monday morning, but that would be our advice. It sounds like you're very well trained. You just had a great race at Shamrock. I'm sure your race is going to be great this weekend. So you're in good shape. So go in and, and, and enjoy it because it's such a thank great experience. You. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, so we're speaking of Boston. Um, <laughs> we are doing a panel at the Expo on Sunday and Marilyn Bevins is one of our featured speakers. And we did a panel with her last year at um, at, at Boston um, uh, with Megan Christian, another top runner, um, kind of talking about the evolution from 50 years ago into, to, to now. Mm -hmm. But um, Marilyn is part of the Breaking Three documentary that mm -hmm. you're also part of. So talk to us a little bit about that and how Tony found you and how you've now become this, you know, kind of a member of this club and, and how you've connected with all these other uh, runners. Oh, you know, literally I got this phone call one day and it was Tony and I was just coming home from work. And I'm like, okay, who is this? You want to give me an award for what? You know, I thought he was crazy. I'm this crazy guy, but it, it was a, a fantastic event where they brought me down to Little Rock, Little Rock, Arkansas for their convention. That's where I was inducted into this Hall of Fame for doing that sub three hours, which always takes me back to that. When people were saying, don't do the marathon, Lisa, I'm so glad I said, forget you guys, I'm gonna do it anyway, because I would not be experiencing this today. And I also think that it's, um, I, I like to have my, what I do inspire others. So if someone would say, I can't do that, please. If I can do it, you can do it. So that has been so much fun working with Tony and the ladies and getting to meet some of them. Of course, Marilyn, number one, because she's just so funny and was so talented and who knew she could have gone even better. She had had a little bit of more. Maybe she had been around my era. I think she would have even done even more. It's funny. It's, it's not so funny, but it's kind of interesting to see the differences and how she had to deal with, I guess, the race issue, obviously, which I had some my little pieces apart, too. I had some issues of race. You would be surprised, um, even at my age or an era. Um, and then the others, oh my gosh, Michelle Bush Cuke is her name. She was my contemporary from the uh, West Coast. She went to school out on the West Coast. So she like, she won the NCAAs the year before I won the NCAAs, 1500 meters. So we were very similar. She's a shorter distance runner 
and just jumped into the marathon. You think my story is good. You should hear hers. Michelle um, Bush at the time, just at the age of 17, jumped into a marathon and ran 236. So yes, so she, and she and her coach like, well, why'd you do that? You know, so, and then, whoa. So she, there's other, you know, other stories that are way better than mine. Um, and the other woman, the one Ingrid with the, the actress who did Amistad, she's a swimmer. Um, she was a lifeguard. She was on Baywatch and she ran, runs her sub three hours in LA. Um, so it's just, and then you're, you're also, you're also impressive. I mean, we, we <laughs> the documentary and, and, all of you have such incredible stories and you've, you've had to tolerate so much. And as you mentioned a little bit earlier, representation is so important from generation to generation and Marilyn inspired you and you're inspiring others. And what is also inspiring is your transparency. Even through this interview, you just shared some really painful stuff that you went through. And by you sharing that you're, you're showing others that, you can, you can get through those hard times. You have to lean on other people, yeah. but it doesn't define you. So speaking of hard times, can you share a little bit about your experiences as a black woman running in, you know, in distance running and in races and what happened to you? Okay. Let's see. Where, where do I start? Um, Again, back in my early days, I was lucky that there was still kind of a new freshness in the air about the racial elements. And, and it, it most of the biggest thing was the sex more than anything, get to get some women going and girls going, Title IX. But I think my biggest one, one thing that happened was most, one of my most and most um, rememberable events was, was I was in California. I went to this road race. Again, I was in that mode of making money with my road racing between my track events. Um, down in, in Southern California, I went to this road race, it was announced. Uh, like 250 for the winner, male and female winner. So um, I got down there and ran the race, won it. And there's this big old discussion afterward if I was going to get some money because they, they said in their literature it was local woman and I wasn't local. So they went around about literally 30 minutes to an hour. My husband and I waited to see if they're going to give me the prize money because I wasn't local. I lived it up in California, which wasn't too far away. But their thoughts were, well... She's not local. And, and then finally someone said, okay, you got to give her the money. So I, I believe that that was truly because I was an African-American runner. And I was the only one there, of course, in those days. All you saw was white uh, runners. That was one incident. Um, when I was with the OJOP program, and I was working in security behind the cameras. So as you can imagine in security, you've got uh, people that are lined up behind these cameras and they're looking at people shoplifting. Well, I work with a couple of white women and there's a there's one Puerto Rican woman and I think an uh, African-American cop coming in now and then in, 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 uh, in and out to get the uh, apprehend the shoplifters. And one day the white woman came in who's out there on the floors because she'd go on the floor like a shopper and she'd see people shopping. She came in and said, there's an N-word on camera 11. And I was like, and she saw me, she didn't know I was there. She did one of those, like, oh my. And I left the office and um, then the manager came running after me like, I'm so sorry. You know, one of those episodes, um, I did have an episode in a big race out in the East Coast. I don't want to give names, but it was a big one. And they were watering people like it was hot. So it was a hot, long race. And so the runners are going by. And at this time, it was when the Africans were coming and getting a lot of money. So they started doing the African only money. So I think the aura was these darn African runners keep winning all this money. So up I come, I'm in the top 25. I'm not up where the Africans are, but I'm chasing another local white or another white woman. And so they spray and it's hot out and she gets sprayed. And then I come by and they take the water away. And I'm of course waiting for the water because it's hot and I'm prone to heat. So I didn't get sprayed. I'm like, whoa, did that just happen? And I kept on going. So that I think was one of those things. And then last one um, of many, there was the one I, I went to a race in West Virginia where um, there was a prize money structure again. And so after the race, I was supposed to get, I came in second, I was supposed to get like 500. Went to go collect and he said, oh yeah, we're, we'll mail you the check. Okay, I said, oh, okay. Came on home. Never got the money. So I never got paid. I know that happened to Michelle Pute too, the same thing. She just, they just, they paid number one or seven, whatever, but then she didn't get paid. So things like that happened throughout um, my years. Unfortunately, not in the later, later years, but early on, that was some of the issues I dealt with. 
And how did you keep moving forward without harboring resentment? Um, because I had bills to pay and I had a kid to take care of or legal fees from a divorce that was ugly. Um, and you just have to keep going. That was really why I, and I enjoyed running and I was good at it and it was still making me money. So, you know. Wow. We also feel like you've got a, such a positive um, you know, outlook. You're just, you're hardworking. You're, you're like you said, you're competitive, you have that drive. So that hopefully, you know, that's, but that's, that's, I, I think a lot of people don't think about those small things that, you know, that seem small, but they're, they're significant. And that's, um, you know, yeah. thank you for, for talking mm -hmm. to us um, about that. So um, what, what, what about, um, do you have a favorite distance now? Is you like, is, is the marathon something you're coming to love or is this Boston going to be done? And then you're going to go back to another distance. What is, what's your favorite distance to run? Gosh, you know, I think my favorite favorite distance is the 800 meters. That is where I was probably the best world ranked overall. I was great in the mile two, but really good. I think world ranked in the, in the 800 so that running two laps around the track fast, uh, I remember in 1991 running in Havana, Cuba against Ana Kiro, the, fam the famous Olympian gold medalist of their country. Um, and I, uh, in that race, wasn't even supposed to be there. Um, the two Americans, either one got hurt or one didn't show up at the, when it was time to go. So I, they put me in to, to do it. I said, sure. And I was coming up, I started back in the race and I started coming up on her. So as I was pulling up on Anna Kiro, the crowd was like, ah. and, and of course she was too darn fast, but um, she, she got me, but I went my PR 198 uh, on that in that race. So it was my fastest 800 and it was an event that I just adore because of how it, uh, it's so fast, it's speed. Cause I remember I always wanted to be a sprinter. So that was my sprint. <laughs> so can you still, can you still get to the track? Do you, you said you don't do, you know, you, you know, you're older, you don't do that anymore, but can you still get to the track? Do you still get to do that at all? Oh, heck yeah. So just the other <laughs> week, just, just the other day, just for my, um, so that's how I, that's how I do the long stuff is that I do longer stuff, quote, long meaning five miles to 10, 12, 15, but then I'll go to the track and do repeat quarters. So I did some repeat quarters the other day and oh, maybe seven between um 75 to 80 uh just and then you just rest a little bit and do a couple more and that enhances my speed so yeah i can Great. still do that i just now i don't want to go back because every time i go to a race now it's like i want to try to beat elisa you know so i don't want to get <laughs> i don't be that guy on the target i'm part of being the target and i'm older and so i'm respecting that um i've done it already and yeah so that that was going to bring us to our next question is you are so talented you continue to win all kinds of masters category awards and you're very diverse in your running platform um doing shorter and longer stuff still but yeah i mean of course as we get older it's hard to not compare ourselves to who we used to be how do you stay motivated and continue competing at such a high level without getting stuck in that framework that so many masters runners tend to get stuck in? I think that I've always been um, more realistic and more appreciating of what the human body does. And I've learned that you, you just can't wallow on just a one glory. Like a lot of times when I was younger, a lot of the top runners would win something and then they wouldn't run it again because they didn't want to lose that win that they had. That's ridiculous. I ran and I'd win, I'd lose and I'd win and lose. I, that's all part of it. So to me, even today, as I'm older, yeah, I'm not going to be the top race anymore, but I'm going to be back there number 50 at 57 years old, you know, and that's my win. I understand if anyone's logical, they can appreciate this woman now is 57 years old. Okay. And she's no longer 25, 32 or 40. I mean, just gonna say you don't look 57. We're on video here. Everyone's gonna hear this on audio, but you don't look 57. So you obviously have found the secret. How do you stay healthy? I mean, have you had to change, you know, as you've gotten older, you said going through menopause, have you had to change, you know, the you talked about running a little shorter or more recovery? What you know, have you had to change your training and how do you stay healthy? Um, a lot of it's from what I did young, uh, young. I was a vitamin taker early on because I researched it and I realized I needed to do it. And thank goodness I did because I I, I've heard from other runners or at least they too took vitamins early on. It's just so hard to get all the nutrients in just food. So vitamins I've been taking since I was 16 years old, maybe 15. I still take them today. 
Um, and it's a combination of whatever I find I need mostly now, no iron anymore, of course, but I take a multi with iron because I'm running a lot. So I've always been cued to, to eating healthy. I can no longer do dairy because I finally realized it's causing my sinus infections that I had a lot of. I was have a sensitivity to milk. So now I'm mostly on soy or oats, things like that. Um, so I've always eaten well. I've never smoked cigarettes. And I don't do alcohol because I just have no tolerance for it. I may celebrate once a year and New Year's, but it always gets me right to bed because I have a half a glass of champagne. So no alcohol, of course, no any kind of recreational drugs, no cigarettes. I've always been hydrated, kind of focused because of the heat stroke early on. So my fluids have got to be electrolyte loaded, juices, love good juices, love coconut water, fresh coconut water. Um, and that's just how I live. I think that's, that's, and then sunscreen and makeup. So funny, I always laugh because when back in my day in, in college in the 80s, we wore makeup. I mean, honey, it was like, wait a minute, I put my makeup on and then we're going to go <laughs> work out. So in doing so, we screened probably our skin um, and it was a big thing, nails, the whole nine. But now I've always, since the, the 80s, I've put on sunscreen and hat, take care of my skin. I tell my athletes, wear your darn sunscreen, um, wear your hat and protect your skin. Um, and I sleep. I'm a sleeper. I cannot uh, function after 9, 30, 10. Never could, even at 20. Uh, I have the first one to bed in college, and I'm the first one to bed now. So I've been a big uh, eight to 10 hour, eight, seven to nine hours of sleep, um, always. It's really practical advice and just shows that the simple <laughs> things are what works. It's nothing fancy. And also, I have to add great genes because clearly, biologically, you have the propensity to run very fast and you're very talented naturally. And that, that shouldn't be ignored, but your, your attitude, your motivation and your ability, as you referenced earlier, to kind of separate your times from you and recognizing that you are not your times. We talk about this a lot. Um, Lisa and I, how important it is to stay competitive, but not wallow in what you used to be, but keep moving forward. So to that end, as we close things out, what are some of your future goals and what advice do you have for our listeners to stay, to stay in the fight? I think right now my future goals are to keep coaching. I like to coach now and different levels. I did my team coaching at Mason for a couple, about three years there, women's, women's track. I did um, high school, a couple of high school teams, loved it, had a lot of success. Now I'm doing individuals um, when I have the time, because now I'm also focused on myself and all that, my family. Uh, and so that gives, is my give back and that keeps me focused into the next level. I always like answering phone calls about the poor kid who's doing this and this coach wants him to do that. What should they do? I love that stuff. Um, and then again, I'm going to probably continue to do events and races, marathoning. I have to really be logical and I can't do a lot of that because of the heat issues and my health. Uh, it's just not smart, but I will always be on the 5Ks. You give me a turkey trot, I'm there every year. Um, I love the 5K, 10K distances. I like track. So I may step back on the track now and then just because it feels good to run fast. <laughs> there are master's track competitions. I get the notices for them. So that's, you know, that's what you get it. Indoor track, indoor track and outdoor track. So, yes. um, you know, that's the nice thing about I I'm getting closer to 50. And I'm actually looking forward to it because like, I'm ready to be in that, you know, that next age group. And there's the um, master senior Olympics too. Yes. The senior Olympics for 15 over. I can't wait till I can't. <laughs> so, so, so what, so what advice do you have for people to stay, to stay in the fight, like to stay interested and engaged when they feel like their, their times are starting to not feel the same or their running isn't feeling the same. What do you say to those folks? Um, assess your fitness. Like I forgot about my muscles. So I was so focused on running, running, running. I forgot about muscles. So I go back to the gym and do basic, simple um, weight training with some weights. Put some weights somewhere. I've got some in my garage. I do all the time. I always, uh, every morning I hang on a bar that help with my spine. Um, I get to my, my gymnastics days. Um, always do some kind of core, you know, keep your body strong and then do cardio and always rest. You do not train every day. It's just so insane. Um, one of, probably one of the reasons why I'm still running today also is that I've always been a person who's taken one to two days off of rest uh, a week. And then for race weeks like this, I took Monday off, I'm taking a day off, and then I'll just do a little light jogs the next two days. There's, you know, it's done. The work is done, means the work really is done. And um, so appreciate resting. That keeps you faster. And then probably ultimately, 
longer career because you're not beating yourself into the ground. So we love that advice. That's, everything yeah. you've said today is just so common sense and yeah. smart. And I think that that's a testament to why you've had such a long and successful career. And we're just so grateful to, to be able to talk to you. I'm looking forward to hopefully seeing you at, at Cherry Blossom and we're hopefully we'll get to see you in Boston. So we are looking forward to seeing you not only at a couple, you know, the couple upcoming races, but then into the future since we're all local, hopefully seeing you out on our local race scene, maybe this time not running with a stroller, but still, <laughs> still running races and still running strong. So thank you so much for joining us and for sharing your story and for being so open and and honest with us and we really appreciate it and um you know for us and we know for our listeners having role models like you is is so important and um it's it's really um it, it really helps all of us kind of keep perspective and and stay motivated so thank you so much for for joining us and for sharing for sharing your story with us thank you ladies it was fun thank you so much for listening to the run farther and faster boston marathon podcast we want to give a special thanks to our editor, Aaron Bryan. And if you enjoyed this episode and enjoy listening to our podcast, please share it with others and please leave a review if you haven't done so already on iTunes. Thanks for listening and have a great week.